Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen and a guest to be named in about 10 seconds. But want to say thank you so much for joining us. We know the episodes have been a bit fewer and farther between. And uh, I guess we've in one on one hand, we've been sort of saving up for this episode. We're excited about it. Um, thank you so much again for for tuning in. And we want to welcome Marty Solomon to the par- podcast. Excuse me, Marty. How are you, man? I'm doing great. It's uh, fun to be here. And so thanks for having me on and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Steven, you want to introduce our guest to our, our listeners here? Well, yeah. You know, why don't we just let him introduce uh, himself a little bit. Marty, tell us about, uh, I guess, more maybe your current work and then give us maybe a little bit of your uh, your background, your you know your pedigree. We'll see if you, if you, uh, if you check out. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So I am... Uh, Let's see. What what am I? I am the the uh, well. Let's start with the good stuff. I'm a husband. I'm married to a wife of 15 years. Name's Becky, Rivka in the Hebrew. We would say, and I got two kids. Uh, Abigail is my oldest daughter. She's about 10 years old. Ezekiel is my son. He's about ready to turn nine here in about three or four weeks. Uh, I serve as the president of Impact Campus Ministries, and. Uh, my flavor, if you would say that, of campus ministry since I was hired a decade ago um, has always been what I called my BEMA Discipleship Program. That has evolved into the BEMA Discipleship Podcast. So that's a, a lot of, uh, that's a portion of what I do these days uh, in, in the midst of running the campus ministry uh, organization. And that's the quick, that's the quick down and dirty introduction of who I am. Cool. Okay. So, uh, impact campus ministries. I mean, is this generally just a, uh, like, like a sort of a, an inner varsity kind of thing or like what, what I I've actually haven't heard of the, of the ministries. I'm not familiar with the, with that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not that big and we're, we're young, we're small. We've been around since the mid nineties. This was when we formed as an organization, but we're, we're similar to, you know, if you're thinking InterVarsity navigators crew, it's a similar kind of organization. Mm-hmm. I think our, our niche that we fit into is a, uh, a spiritual formation. Yeah. Dean Troon was our founder and he, he founded us as a really prayer centered ministry. And, and I bring a little bit more of a textual um, flavor to that spiritual formation, but still very just, um, if we wanted to be known for something, it would be, uh, you know, crew would be known for evangelism and intervarsity known for discipleship. And if we had a thing we would want to be known for, those are the guys that know how to, how to pray. They know how to fast. They know how to memorize the scripture. They know what it's like to create space for God and, and, uh, and listen. So that's kind of, of who we are. We're, we're rooted in the, we have our foundations in the Stone Campbell Christian Church, Church of Christ movement. Um, we're non-denominational. We have a lot of people that aren't from those traditions, but that's kind of where we have mm-hmm. our, our roots. And uh, yeah, that's impact. So do, you, do your folks join a local congregation and then they're, the, the impact is like a parachurch kind of thing? You know, one of the things that I love about the organization that I get to leave is, lead is our diversity. Um we have everybody's doing it differently. So some of our people really do. They they find a church home. They they almost join a, a pseudo. They're they're almost pseudo staff, so to speak. They run the college programming for that local church. Um, but I have other teams that have multiple staff members, and every single one of them 
uh, go to a different church, a unique church, and they do that on purpose. That's intentional on their part to build more relationships throughout the area. And so everybody does it a little differently, and we encourage that because every one of our team leaders and every one of the contexts that they minister in is different. And so we try to avoid having one box approach to how we do campus ministry. So everybody, it, it looks different everywhere we go, and, and that's one of the things that I love so much about uh, what we do. So it's are, are most of the people... So when you, that's very interesting. And I'm going to make this comment because I think a lot of our listeners, particularly who come from Churches of Christ background, will have pretty deep campus ministry roots. So it's always encouraging and interesting to hear different perspectives. Stephen and I were both part of what I consider to be active and growing, you know, campus ministries when we were in college. Um, to, to, to add a question on to that point you just made, you talk about folks being in different churches. Are these all within generally the same stream? So churches of Christ, Christian churches, but across the city, or do you have Mr. You know, Bill from First Baptist and, and you know, Jane from the Catholic, you know, church down the road? Like how, how much space is there? Not so much space, but how are these people coming from just totally different kinds of backgrounds into impact? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. A kind of a dirty little secret. Um, depends on where you're sitting in the in the country. Uh, because if you're in the Bible Belt, I feel like those teams are very rooted in that Church of Christ and Christian Church identity. If you're out here in Northern Idaho, where I'm at, I don't. I, you know, I'm in a church of uh, thirteen, fifteen hundred people. I, hmm. I bet ten of them even know what the Restoration Movement is. So that just changes the. The recruits that we we have coming out of an area like the Pacific Northwest or Southern California, they don't have the same identity and rootedness or awareness of the movement. So we do have people that have reformed backgrounds. We do have people coming out of, I just hired um, uh, a guy who's coming out of a more Baptist tradition. So we do, and I love that. It just brings so much unique perspectives to our staff conferences and our conversation. And I, I feel like for those that are familiar with the Restoration Movement, I mean, that's the, that is who we are. I mean, that's, that's what we always set out to become, and we lost that a century ago or more. But I love to be a part of that today. It's a little funky if I'm, if I'm sitting in Indianapolis or you know somewhere right there in the center of, of the restoration movement. It's hard to explain that in a way that people will often understand it, but I love it. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd imagine you have to hold – there's a payoff to that. Right, because if you have a sort of uniformity, we all come from the exact same background. You're sort of baptized, both literally and and kind of figuratively, into the same stream with the same background. That you know, there is a sort of streamlining and and kind of a homogenous culture. I'd imagine with the diversity comes, you know, some tension that has to be held, and just it probably it's you know a little messier, but I'd imagine that much more fruitful and diverse as well. Yeah, uh, that's exactly it, and we're definitely in the middle of it, even even right now and and um, the things that we wrestle with all the time but that that is the heartbeat of what I think are the, the founders of the movement were were chasing yeah. and one of my favorite quotes from one of my good buddies who's a pastor here he, he always says unity is not uniformity and I've, mm-hmm. I've always loved to carry that around um, because that's what we often try to do with unity and and uh, really that's that's not unity at all it's like you said, just a homogenous thing that we we get going on. So yeah. Last question about the campus ministry, at least for me. Where do most when you talk about people joining the impact? Where are most of these people coming from? 
in terms of their spiritual walk. Uh, are you referencing students or staff or? So, in, in, sorry. So in particular students, meaning are these people that, and I know it's going to be different in every geography, but generally speaking, are these people that maybe that grew up religious, but never really took the Bible seriously? Are these total kind of heathen atheist people that are coming to faith for the first time? Are they folks just going a level deeper in their faith? Is there a general consensus, like where, what attracts folks to impact? Hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. And I don't want to um, keep deflecting to the same answer, but I'm going to have teams that are just so different because of who the leader is and what they attract and and, um, just the way they do ministry and what ends up, you know, I I have guys that are so relational and they just pull in outsiders and marginalize. We have one ministry in New York and the way that he does ministry, like any outsider, you know, mumser, we would call them on on the BMA podcast, like any, anybody that doesn't fit is going to be found in this ministry. And it's beautiful. And I, I love it. But we have other guys that are like me that are just teachers. And we attract, uh, I know in my ministry, I found a lot of kind of recovering fundamentalist mm. kids um, that were, they didn't want to leave their faith. But boy, were they having a hard time hand, you know, hanging on to what their parents had given them. And I get a lot of that. But every team is 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 pretty different, um, and I, I'm trying to search my mind for consensus, and but I, I just don't see a whole lot of a lot of that. It really depends on who's God's who God has brought there and what that ministry looks like, who shows up at their door. That's I mean, I, I, one of the things I love about about the the, the Bema or is it Bema? How do you say that? That's probably a good place to start. Bema Bema. Well, let, let's just let's just let me eat some humble pie here to start. Let's just <laughs> let's do this before we get to the ten minute mark. Um, so uh, when I first started um, my ministry, I had slightly misheard my teacher, and I was always pronouncing it Bema. And there are some there are some dialect differences with the Israeli dialect versus like a more Brooklyn type Hebrew and those kind of things. But eventually, years later, as I just kept learning, I, I eventually just heard that I was just articulating it incorrectly. It's supposed to be Bima, the Bima. Oh. You stand on the Bima. And so over time, <laughs> Brent, Billings, <laughs> Brent Billings and I had all these conversations of somehow we have to kind of start changing this over time without really saying anything so that people don't really know what it's supposed to be. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Well, the Athens-Georgia dialect, I guess, would be the, the Bima. The Bima. Part. Bima. No, I love a that. Bai, like a bai, Bima. Yeah. yeah. Bima. You guys are going to save us there. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to call it accents. That's what, that's what we're going to have. Well, you know, you there know, you it's go. called, it's, it, it's Alabama. <laughs> you know, it's not actually. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Man. Well, so that, uh, Marty, we wanted to bring you on here today. I guess one, we've, we've already kind of covered, uh, some of the stuff. I mean, I, th- I think that your, your podcast is a great example of, uh, coming to the text with fresh eyes or like maybe not so much fresh eyes, but I mean, to us, they're fresh. Um, and, and and being able to find richness and and, and depth uh, again, especially for folks as they've you know been through seasons of doubt or deconstruction or just uh, I don't know. We've, we've Andrew and I've had a lot of friends where you're they've been in in one tradition for a long time and and you just the more you start to kind of to see more and more of the world and other disciples out there, other Christians, um, there's just a lot of there's a lot of great thinking going on out there. Uh, and it's, yeah. and it's, it's hugely, uh, it, it's diverse. And I think that the, 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 Bema, the, the Bema podcast, excuse me, uh, is a, uh, is a way to, uh, it's a great way to, I guess, to, to come back to the text 
but also still find such newness. And, and, and I love the inclusive posture you also bring to it. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about it. So um, sure. one of the things that uh, we've been wanting to kind of pick your brain about here lately is uh, the, the Sabbath and what we can learn about sort of the Jewish relation to time, uh, how, how Jesus would have related to time and what all that means for us today. Right. Um, where do you want to start with that? Oh, um, well, let me just start by channeling some of my uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, Please and, do. I mean, his great work, one of the, it's considered a classic and it hasn't even been, <laughs> so I think it's written in the 50s, if I remember correctly, his work on Sabbath, mm-hmm. um, short little book, but really deep and profound. And, and in it, he talks about Sabbath as a, as, as a cathedral and one of the points that he makes about Judaism is he says, every pagan experience, and he doesn't say this with a supercritical spirit, it's just an observation. He says, the, the pagans, we always try to make um, physical space and location, uh, that's what we try to make holy. So we build buildings, and the Jews, I mean, they build a temple too, so this isn't some large critique leveled at yeah. all those crazy pagans, but our human nature, we want to make a physical space and a place um, holy because it's the one part of the time-space creation that we can get our hands on. And yet what God has asked his people to do is not make physical space holy, but make a space of time holy. And he talks about the significance of that and, and, and the significance of that kind of holiness, that those rhythms... And it's not just Sabbath, it's the festivals and it's the, Mm -hmm. your whole life is built around rhythms and almost all of them tied to the physical creation. Like you're letting, you're letting this created world that God made speak to you through these rhythms. And so time for them, I think the difference between, especially in our, and this would be true of Jesus's world, like, and, and, and even more true in our world. The Greek world, the Greco-Roman world, well, time was money. I mean, we, mm. we literally say that time is money. Like time, the more you can manage time, the more money you can make, the more leisure you can create, the more, you know, whatever it was. But that Hellenism has this leisure, luxury, comfort, um, power, pleasure. And we, we try to maximize time so that we can we can consume more, and 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 I think about like in our own culture, like this whole daylight saving thing that we have going on, <laughs> and and the way that we were like, well, if we can just change our clocks, we can maximize the daylight for more production, right? And and this Jewish perspective just completely pushes against that and says. No, like there's less daylight for a reason. And I'm supposed to draw in. I'm supposed to sit around the campfire. Like it, it's it, the temperature is dropping. The daylight is shrinking because I'm supposed to be spending more time with surrounded by my family and my friends, more reflection as everything around me is done. Like there are rhythms and, and time becomes this holy thing that I don't try to manipulate for my ends, for my production. But I try to let the holiness of that time manipulate me um, mm. to change me mm. uh, to produce something inside of inside of me. So, 
uh, and I don't even know if I, how far I strayed from your original question, but that's, no, that's, that's what I, that's what, when I think of time and Judaism, um, f- for, for the Westerner, it's a, it's an, it's a means to an end. And for, for a Jewish mind, I wouldn't say it's the end in of itself, but it is certainly, there's something far more sacred. It's not just a conduit for production. Yeah. Um, time is, time is holy and it's, it's telling a story. So, Yeah. Where do you see, uh, you know, you, you you read from Heschel or you described Heschel's uh, description of, of sort of the pagan relation to um, the divine uh, with sacred spaces and the, sort of the, the manipulation of, of spaces and objects for some kind of a divine interaction. How, how do you see that kind of occurring uh, in in Christianity in the West? Ooh, that's a good question. Um yeah, and boy, I'm, I'm going to be so uh, constrained to my own experiences, so I'm going to try to open my mind to like all the different... Well, there are some ways that we just... I mean, I think of my... I didn't grow up in a liturgical high church movement at all. I, you know, I don't... Catholicism was always so far off my radar. Those kinds of expressions in the Western church, I've always found so much beauty in them, because I feel like they're almost doing that well uh, in some senses, because they, or the Eastern Orthodox Church, they have this ability to take physicality and kind of tap us into the same reality. So it's not Eastern, it's very Western, but they're still kind of like knocking on the door of the same thing that, that Jews are doing with time. So... So that's that's definitely, um, but boy, I mean, I mean, the easy thing to just think about in modern evangelicalism and the church that I experience uh, in different places, typically week in, week out, is just how how we are trying to use physical space in just our church buildings and our church services. I mean, I think every church I've been to now has the order of service where every every piece is outlined to the second, to the minute. Um, we have to have this beautifully flowing worship experience that starts with the countdown and then, and we're just maximizing <laughs> time. We're, we're using the same imperial mindset to try to produce, e- either try to give a consumer good to our consumers, our congregants, mm. or we're trying to use that time to manipulate it for effectiveness and efficiency because you know the parking lot like we have to get cars out because we got to get cars in. We are surrounded by such, in light of your question, I'm going to call them pagan concerns mm-hmm. rather than, and I know we have brothers that, I know we have more spirit-filled Pentecostal brothers and sisters that would see this differently, but in traditions that I'm used to, we're not, we're not asking any questions about what the Spirit's doing on a Sunday morning. We're asking, we're asking questions about, whether or not we're getting the children checked out on time. And I understand the practical necessity of that, but I think that's where we see time rearing its head in our, in our experience here in the Western world and the Western church. It's, it's, it's just like anything else that we do in, in culture. And I feel like that space should be doing something else. It should be counterintuitive. It should be countercultural. It should be pushing against some of those normal, yeah. normal experiences and, yeah, but, but it's easy to throw stones. So I always got to check myself. It's just, it's easy to sit back yeah. and be like, yeah, how stupid is that? But it's tricky. It's tricky. Are we, are we more prone to that? I guess just as, as American Christians, I mean, or, or do you think that's occurring in elsewhere in the world? Cause I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in particular about, um, 
I guess particularly like evangelical Christianity, which I, I would sort of locate myself inside of. Yep. Um, uh, our sort of preoccupation with proximity to power and influence. And so we become interested not so much in like, like we become more interested in, in winning the game than changing the game or playing a different one. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, hmm. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. And I mean, one of the heart of my narratives with the, with the Baymoss stuff is this empire shalom. There's this, there's yeah. this narrative of, or, or two narratives, there are competing narratives. And we definitely, I mean, we just believe in the Western world. It's about effectiveness. It's about efficiency. It's not about the kingdom economy. It's about what we understand about our economy. And I'm not just talking about monetary economy, but, but time and resources and all, all ways, shapes, forms. Yeah. And we, we want to leverage that. And, and the kingdom, this kingdom economy is just so backwards from our typical experience. So I, I do, I think, and, and yet at the same time, I'm like, but that's okay. Like God wants to meet us American Christians here in our American yeah, Christianity. Yeah. He wants to, he wants to, there, there's going to be ways without having to toss it all out and change. There, there's, and, and I have amazing people and churches everywhere that I go that have an unbelievable awareness of, of holiness and sanctity. Um, it's not completely lost, but our tendency, yeah, I think we definitely have a dangerous tendency to, uh, you're absolutely right, yeah. You uh, you mentioned something interesting when we were talking just a few minutes ago about this Jewish rhythm of time, and you you kind of mentioned in passing uh, something about how it's kind of, it starts with creation. Could we kind of go there for a minute? How, where do you see, where do you see the, the this this different posture towards time showing up in the creation narrative. Well, the main thing is this idea of seasons, which actually happens to sit right there in the center of that Genesis one chiasm. And, and this, like the whole poem is revolving around this one word. It's spinning around one word and it's this Hebrew word moad, which usually typically gets translated in our English as, as seasons. It's there. And it's rhythms. It's holy rhythms to, it shows up in day four of creation where God says he puts the sun, the moon, and the stars to govern the days, the years, and the seasons. Like hmm. there is this, the movement of the cosmos, it te- that in and of itself, if we will, if we will just stop long enough to observe that, it tells us a story. I love, and, and this is one thing I brought with me out of my reformed uh, Protestant roots that I brought with me into our restoration movement experience was the observance of like Advent and Lent. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you do those correctly, th- those are powerful. You're catching the, you're catching, you're surfing the spiritual waves of, of seasonal change as everything is dying around you. You're asking the question of what needs to die inside of me. And you sit down in this dark, dreary, no leaves on the trees, it's cold, it's cloudy, it's depressing, seasonal effectiveness, and then and then stuff starts to come back to life as we celebrate Lent. Like that rhythm in and of itself feeds my soul so profoundly every single year. Um, and that's just because we're just simply paying attention to what is physical creation doing around me. And we have a tendency to try to do the opposite in our American production mentality, 
When it gets warm, we turn on the air conditioning. When it gets cold, we turn on the heater. Like we'll do anything. We'll, we'll do daylight saving time. We'll change our clocks just to ignore, to try to beat the rhythms of creation. And so to do, to do whatever we can to catch the rhythms and to go with the rhythms is so profoundly powerful to me. Um, and that's just part of the, the physicality. But, you know, I'm working with students at these universities, very ag-centric students, and even people that are, are not in their mid-20s. I had lunch just the other day with somebody who's nearing retirement in his early 60s. He works with soil. Um, he's, even, he's even very, he, I, would, I would say he's much more conservative in his bent pretty much on every mm-hmm. spectrum. And yet he's like, I got to tell you what's happening to our soil. And I can promise you that if we let our soil rest every seven years, we would not have what, but we are ruining, we are ruining our earth. Um, uh, and it's just amazing to, to pay attention to the physicality of creation and let it speak to us about some of these things that um, it's more than just spiritual practice. It's, it's aligning our spiritual practice with, with soil and dirt and sweat and blood and like physical stuff, um, bringing those two things together. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the craziness and the insanity of, of, you know, the, our, our hyper production, you know, uh, I, I hate making huge sweeping statements about like a culture thing, but you know what I mean? I mean, there is, there is something in the water here in America about, about how we, how we're, how we're managing our lives. And, and, uh, there is uh, my my family. We started trying to um, to observe the, the Christian calendars as, as best as we can a couple of years ago, and it really it's been it's hard, man. I mean, it's it's really it's not it's really hard. It's hard just to because uh, it's not just a matter of actually doing it. It's not a matter of just okay, I'm going to light the candles because it's the season, or we're going to do this tonight. It's more it's it is a matter of actually right. reorienting my my interior, um, right. And man, it's it 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 is transformative. I'm not saying we're good at it, but it's every, every year. Every year we walk out with just a little a little something, and I feel like uh, it's been helpful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things one of the things about Sabbath and that particular rhythm is all throughout the scriptures it connects Sabbath to discernment. Um, Ezekiel 22 be a great example of a chapter hmm. where the the thing that Ezekiel is trying to communicate. It is is you have lost your ability to appreciate the holy. You you no longer discern between the holy and the common. You can't tell the difference between light and darkness. You've lost all discernment. And the and Ezekiel keeps connecting it to you don't Sabbath. And and we could argue whether what's coming first. And I'm not even sure one does come first, or if it's all just cyclically related. But Sabbath gives you eyes to see. Sabbath is a thing that causes you to stop long enough. Jews will call it truth-telling. Like, Sabbath is the day that tells you the truth. Yeah. And because I stop every single week to hear the truth, to tell the truth, to be told the truth, I now have eyes to see clearly for the next six days the world appropriately as I ought to. And it's that same, it's that same, it's that same truth we're talking about here, about the physicality. Sabbath, stopping, gives me eyes to to see, they they talk about the the two tablets of the uh, Moses's uh, two tablets of the the ten words of Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. 
and the Jews will point out how there's there's we, we always do four and six in the Christian world, but it's actually five and five. There's five on the first tablet, five on the second, and they'll talk about how they're connected. The two tablets are parallel. Like the first the first commandment is related to uh, to the sixth commandment, and the second one to seven, mm. and the third to eight, and the fourth to nine, and five to ten. And what that means is Sabbath gets lined up with don't lie, because Sabbath is because they're all connected by a meta principle. Like, don't have any other gods. No idolatry is connected to adultery. Um, do not honor the Sabbath is connected to do not lie. And Sabbath is a tr- Sabbath is the truth teller. These sacred these sacred rhythms um, are what connect us to what's most true and allow us to discern between light and darkness, between the sacred and the common, between the holy and the profane. All because we stopped long enough to go. Okay, remind me of what what 2020 spiritual vision is. Okay, now let's go. Wow. So what what does that look like in the Solomon household? I mean, you've got, and then you said you, you didn't grow up, at, uh, and uh, you describe yourself as as an observant, a Torah observant Jew that follows Jesus, right? So what is it yeah. like now in your house, coming from where you where you came from, and now now living into these rhythms? Yeah, you know when we when we uh, reclaimed our Jewish heritage, which I was aware of my whole life, and that's a whole other story for another podcast. But um, but when we reclaimed, and do you that, mean like biologically, like hereditary yes, family? Yeah, okay, right. okay, yeah, I have paternal. Both, but you and your wife? Uh, no, just just me. Um, okay, uh, I have paternal Jewish roots, um, which which in Orthodox Judaism would mean nothing because you need Wouldn't maternal count, Jewish roots. Right? But nevertheless, um, like I said, a whole a whole long story there, but. Um, but yeah, when we when we reclaimed that practice and that Torah observance, uh, we did really well for a handful of years because we were just right here. It was easy. We observed Sabbath Friday night sundown through Saturday night sundown, um, and for us, it just looks like we had this we had this mantra in our house um, that I taught my kids when they were two years old, just barely old enough to say it. And and we said, you know, I'd ask them, "What day is it today?" They'd say, "Sabbath." I'd say, what does that mean? And we have four things. We rest, we play, no work, God loves us. Love and that. The, I, and that is so simple, a three-year-old can understand it, and it's still the most profound definition for me when I'm like, oh, I have to like do this gut check of Sabbath, and I just go, we rest, we play, no work, God loves us. That's what this day is about. Like if what I'm doing can be about that. And so we did really well for, for years making that a real, and then I got this job as president and it requires me to travel a lot and everybody's free on Saturday. And I have found it to be a lot more of a struggle and it's been an up and down struggle and a part of, I mean, I don't live in an Orthodox Jewish community. I worship alongside of evangelicals and, and they don't hold the same perspective as I hold often. And so if I'm going to work alongside of them and serve them and love them as a minister and somebody trying mm-hmm. to be a leader, a spiritual leader and a shepherd, I'm, I'm going to have to show up on some Saturdays. And, and how to figure out what that looks like is really hard. Um, and I try to keep it from being just laden with guilt because uh, that's just not helpful and just not what the Sabbath is about anyway. So it, it's a constant, probably once or twice a year, checking in as a family and, uh, and then my, my ministry team. Um, and, and even the last year or two, making some changes that have just been really meaningful, being able to communicate that to my staff and saying, hey, when I come visit you, 
let's not plan anything on Saturday except for just like fun family time. Like I always want to hang out with your family anyway. Let's just make sure we do that on Saturday. Let's let's go catch a Notre Dame game. Let's which would not be okay in Orthodox Judaism. But <laughs> in, in my world, like, let's just do something that allows us to just unplug and just be. Uh, and my staff are like, yeah, let's do that. And and the fact that they honor that and join me in that has been a huge part of me being able to find some of those rhythms again. Um, so, yeah, it's been tricky. How old are your kids now? My kids are now 10 and 8. So you, you've been doing this now for eight years or so. Um, where right? I mean, it's, or I guess it'd be six or eight. Yeah, which yeah. One it, it was right as my daughter was being born, almost ten. It's about nine, almost ten. Yeah, about ten years, almost exactly. Yeah. Do they? Do they kind of roll their eyes and be like, "Dad, ugh, none of my friends do this," or Not yet. or have they like, have <laughs> they like embraced this kind of like, no, like we're a weird family and this is what we do and this is, yeah. Yeah, that part. Yeah, no, that part is has been good so far, and I'm not naive. Like I'm aware that my my daughter's not going to be ten; she's going to be thirteen, and then she's going to be sixteen. Yeah, and who knows what that whole journey will be like? I'm I'm trying to be present (laughs) along for the ride, but they've managed it really well. And I think when my daughter was probably uh, first grade, she was my first kid, so I was learning all these lessons. And I think, cross my fingers. Uh, or not because we don't believe in that, but you get the idea. Um, uh, like I, I think I, I caught a good moment. Like I had a win and that was, there's a lot of things that we don't do. Like there's a lot of holidays we, we're not going to observe because there's just no, I, I'm going to struggle to reclaim it in a way that's just not flat out compromised with my Jewish beliefs. Like, so, like, which, like which ones? Which holidays? Oh, like Halloween. Okay. Um, and of course we could do like, like there's a million ways we can come back to that. But I, I want to use my holidays and my biblical festivals to tell my children a story. Yeah. And the easiest yeah. way to tell my kids that we are, we are, we are kadosh, we are set apart, we're different is holidays. Holidays are the most, is the easiest way for me to tell my kids that story without having to do a whole bunch of extra work and then deconstruct everything later. Um, because mm. holidays, holidays just tell us a narrative, and I, and I know that it's tradition, and it's it's warm, and it's full of family, it's full of memories, but it's also full of like deeply seated narratives that get repeated over and over again every single year, and then you know later I have to deconstruct all that and figure out how to weed through all that. Yeah. So that was just one decision I made, and then and then I remember one day. Uh, well, I won't even tell you the content. I don't want to make all your listeners upset, but no, I um, think you should. <laughs> we can okay. edit it okay, out. Here goes. No, yeah. we're probably not going to edit it. Yeah. Okay, here goes nothing. So my daughter came home and she had learned the Pledge of Allegiance in first grade. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, that. get rid of that. That's right. Hey, man, we're like Anabaptists, so that's, that's what you're right. Right. You're good. You're <laughs> good. You're good. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, I am with my people right now. Okay, that's right. this is good. That's right. So I like started to go, like I started to do my whole, well, okay, let's talk about this. And my daughter starts breaking down in tears. And she's like, Dad... I just am so tired of being different. Yeah. Mm. And she's a first grader. She's six years old. Uh, and at that point, I went, okay, we'll do Pledge of Allegiance later. Yeah. Because yeah. um, she wasn't weeping because she had this love for the flag. And <laughs> right. 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 She was weeping because she was like, I am so tired of always. Yeah. And so I could just keep pushing that and be like, well, that's who we are as God's people. But I felt like I caught that that day. And that was a win for me as a dad of being like, okay. Like yeah. she understands, she her language told me, 
I know that I'm supposed to be different, but I'm just getting close to my capacity where you're going to burn me out. Mm. And, and at this point, my kids understand, because I think of our intentionality, we try to be, and we're making a ton of mistakes, don't get me wrong, a ton of mistakes, but we're intentional enough about it. My kids at this point are like, yeah, yeah, no, we're different. We're, and I just love the, the fun things that my son says at a grocery store when somebody's like, so did you get any, what kind of presents did you get for Christmas? And my son goes, we don't celebrate Santa because we celebrate Jesus. Um, I just <laughs> yeah, love that. Get him. Um, <laughs> That's cool. And I just sit there and I, and I, with a smile on my face, I'm like, Zeke, we probably shouldn't say it that way. But inside, I'm just like laughing so, so hard. W- what does Christmas then look like? Because actually, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this lately. We've this is been... the parenting episode, by the way. Oh, so yeah, this is really yes. for us. It's not really Forget for the outline we sent you. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's out the window. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, These questions aren't in front of me. <laughs> no, we're trying to figure this out. Yeah, go ahead. I, man, I'm, it's such a, I, I wrestle with that because I'm like, dude, like we, we Advent this year was, was great. This is our, I think, fourth year doing Advent. Um, I really, I'm, I'm really... I'm really loving the rhythm. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of finding some new kind of spread fresh, like spiritual life in it, but right. everything around us is just not there. Right. And, and, and right. there's some like legitimate, like how do you, how do you navigate that with family? Cause of course, like grandparents want to buy presents for their grandbabies. And, yep. and I'm not, I don't want to like force everyone in the family. Like, hey guys, we're doing this. Right. So, you know, get on board. But what, yep. what is that like for you? What do you guys do for Christmas and, what, and what, what's worked? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to do is honor other people. I think that's Jesus's yoke. Yeah. Uh, I mean, loving other people as much as you can, mm. living at peace with everyone as much as it depends on me. So I'm trying to not take that away from family. I know that that grandparents love that. So I never attempted to try to take that away. I wanted to honor that. Uh, and I wanted my kids to be able to experience some of it. Like I, like, so grandma and grandpa and Nana and Papa and, and we got friends and they're going to give us gifts and we're even going to give some other people gifts because we're not going to be like, well, we don't observe that. So sorry, we're going to genocide generosity. Um, yeah. So we still give gifts to others, but within our house, and it's not, we're not militant about it. We never tell anybody else they should do it. It's just what we're trying to experiment with and what we're trying to do as a family. We just, we don't do any gifts because I know when I think back on Christmas as a child and as a teen, it like, I know it's about Jesus in my head. That's not what I remember. Like yeah. I remember gifts. I remember consumerism. I remember everything but Jesus. Um, and an accurate rendition of the Christmas story. So uh, my family, I collect nativities um, because if Christmas, I'm going to observe Advent with my Christian brothers and sisters as we go through the calendar. So I'm going to, but I want it to be about the thing that it's about. And so uh, we're just getting more and more nativities as we get older. And if you come to my house, there's nativities everywhere because I want my kids to associate the story of Jesus, the story of the nativity that narrative is what they're going to, when they think back to what mom and dad taught me and what Christmas was about, that's what we believed was it was about Jesus. Um, and then we're, we're trying to associate that with service and hearing the cry because Christmas was about God hearing the cry of his people. Mm. And so instead of us giving and getting gifts, we want to associate it with, are we hearing the cry? Because if we're not the people crying out this Christmas, somebody is, and Christmas is about God hearing that and then coming and being born in the middle of that garbage. Um, so how are we going to come bring baby Jesus to, to somebody's yuck? And so that's what we try to do that. And we don't, we're not awesome. I mean, don't hold me up on some hero pedestal because we do a poor job of that every year, but that's what we're trying to associate everything around. And we just got rid of some of the easy, some of the easy, just 
tinsel and yeah. shiny things and everything that just makes you go, oh, it's Christmas and it's just so wonderful and comfortable and cozy and <laughs> that's just not the Christmas narrative. Right. So we just tried to remove our need for all of that and and do something else. You know, it's, um, this is the boy, first. Is that an easy way to tell a story? This this is the first year that we did uh, we did twelve days of Christmas, and I was blown away at how hard it was. Because once all the gifts and things are done, I mean, it's 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 just it's just in my it's like ingrained in me. Like, okay, Christmas is over. Now right. what? So well, I mean, so I totally. I mean, I felt pretty convicted because, like, man, this is really is. I mean, the way that I have been living my life and I don't like blame, you know, anybody like my parents or anything for this. No, this is just, this is just cult- culturally what's normal. Um, yeah. One, once that one day is done, it's like, what is, what is there to celebrate? How do we, how do you even do that? And that's, that's, that's right. Tough right. Rhythm. Yep. Um, yeah. What about Easter? I mean, do you, do you do the Easter bunny suit? Do you, do you do the egg hunts? What do you, uh, man, I am <laughs> trying to figure out cause in my, in my spiritual heart, like, the resurrection, like as a Jesus yeah. follower, like that is it. Like that is the penultimate that, that is, it is all about that. It is, that is the all encompassing greatest truth moment. However we want to slice and dice it and see it and interp- like the resurrection. So, and I, it's so big inside of me that I'm having a hard time and have for years. In fact, this, this, this resurrection day when I preached, was the first time I ever just wrote a sermon and read it from a transcript. Like, I just don't do that. But I did this year because I felt like it was the only way for me to sit in the holiness and not try to sell some cheap. And I even compared my, I even compared it to a chocolate Easter bunny and an empty plastic Easter egg. Cause like I jump around stage and I try to get everybody to cheer and fist pump cause the tomb is empty. And I'm just like, it, it's bigger than that. It's holier right. than that. It's more profound than that. It has more resonance than that. Um, and so Easter is really, Resurrection Day is hard for us. And so we definitely don't do the Easter bunny or or eggs. or That's an easy call for our family. I'm not saying it's an easy call for everybody else, but it's an easy call for our family. We do it. We try to do a massive celebration, like one of the best dinners, like pull out all the stops but I still don't have something that just nails the celebration for my family. Yeah. But that is the one day where we're going to, and it usually shows up right in the middle, obviously, of unleavened bread. So um, we're right in the middle of trying to observe unleavened bread. And that's the one day I'm like, you know what? Leaven today because the tomb is empty. Like we try to find all this, all these ways of just saying this is a big deal. But yeah, that's hard too. It, it's so we are, we are moving and learning as we go. That is for sure. Man, I love that. It, uh, it's a it's an iterative process for sure. So appreciate the kind of it's not practical, but rather sort of the practice element that comes with the with discipleship, and to hear kind of someone doing it. You know, it's one thing to be a young single college age going around preaching and doing this great, and that's great. Like I was that guy, and I think everyone's been that guy one time. But it's different when you have like living, breathing humans that you're responsible for, and um, you know, and, right. and even everything you said earlier about the seasons, like maybe think, man, but what about like the city? And when you're like in the inner city, it can feel like total, I don't know if you're in a city or what, but um, it can feel like a different world also in terms of rhythms, or I should say lack thereof, because 
it doesn't sleep and you're kind of, so all of this is resonating with me. I want to take a bit of a turn, maybe in the last like 10 minutes or so here, it's a turn, but frankly, kind of zooming back, we could have even started here, but to totally kind of shift gears and get back to the Big Ma podcast, as well as some of your more found, some of your most foundational focuses and, and work, um, and, and what most folks will know you for in terms of the podcast, in terms of your teaching is really, you know, the biblical narrative, the, you know, understanding kind of the Hebrew Jewish context of not only Jesus in the New Testament, but the Hebrew scriptures themselves. You know, you mentioned the Torah observance and, and your Jewish roots, but I think you'd also employ people in the uh, Christians period to be aware of, of the meta narrative throughout scripture of the historical Jesus, the, these deep, you know, deeply Jewish rooted pieces. And, and, you know, I think the mantra or the phrase or whatever you want to call it attached to the Bema podcast is love God, love others, become people of the text. So I'm getting to a question, which is talk to us kind of, and give us a snap, uh, a snapshot for those who maybe don't know you and want to get into some of your work kind of what, why become people of the text Sort of where does that come from? Yeah, that's a good why has this focus been, been important to your work and, and to your ministry? Um, and, and maybe give people a taste of, of that work. Yeah, boy, that is a really good question. And so many different ways that we could attack that one. Um, let me do two things with that sure. question. One of those would be, um, uh, when I, at, 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 let me speak first from my Jewish perspective. Sure. As a Jew, I, I believe that, that we are the keepers of Torah. I think Paul says that in his letters, the New Testament references, the, the keepers of Torah. That, that is the calling of we are to be people of the book in every way, shape, or form, to have the book in us in a way that, and I, and I even believe, and this gets a little crazy, that's okay. Um, you don't have to agree with this, but I believe there's a... Like the Jewish people have a mystical connection with, with the scriptures, with Torah and Tanakh. Hmm. I would even argue the New Testament. Like I, there is something very unique about the relationship to the book. It is our, it is our job to know it, to have it, to... Um, oh, okay. Random, obscure cultural reference number one. Go for it. Uh, book of Eli. The movie? Yeah. The movie? Denzel? Yeah, the movie? Yeah. One of my favorite... Uh, little movies, um, that that movie is like a metaphor for like, no spoiler alerts here, but the ending of that movie, I don't know how I, how I say this without a spoiler alert, um, the ending of that you, movie. It's an old movie, you can yeah. kind of go for it. <laughs> okay, yeah. You get all the way to the end of this movie and you realize, <laughs> and I never picked it up, I don't think you were supposed to, he's blind and he's memorized the entire scripture and and there's no more Bibles, they're all gone in this po- post this post-apocalyptic world. And I remember just openly weeping as he starts reciting the book of Genesis, like did not see it coming. It was the craziest plot twist at the end. And that has been like this living artistic metaphor. And it's kind of stupid. It's, it's not really that fantastic of a movie, but I, I have brought that with uh. me. Like that's, that is the Jewish role to be the people who know the book, who have the book, the book is in them. The book is flowing out of them, which leads me to my second part. And that was when I got a chance to study under Ray Vanderlaan over in Israel and Turkey, it wasn't my first trip. I, he planted some seeds that really took root. I started getting into the text when I came back from my very first trip. I started memorizing the text. I, I became very text-oriented, very text-centric. It revived my spiritual formation. Like I started, 
I could, I could get up every morning and want to live and breathe and, and just devour the text. Like that was great. But it wasn't until my second and third trips where it finally clicked on me what Ray was trying to, to teach, which is these words have holy, like these words are unique. They have, they have supernatural, they're God's words. And, and his favorite passage is always Isaiah 55, like as the rain and the snow falls from the heavens and it does not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and to flourish, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will always accomplish the purpose and the desire for which I sent it. Like God's words are never void. They always accomplish a purpose. And and there's no way I could do this in just a few minutes, but to if you ever get a chance to come to Israel and Turkey with me, particularly Turkey, and see what the early church was doing, to see what John was doing in the book of Revelation, to study what Paul is doing, they're taking God's words and they're putting them into context. And the people they're talking to don't even know that they're using text. Like they're not even aware that they're using God's words. So why are they doing it if the audience is completely lost on it? They're doing it because they believe that's where the power lies. The power lies in, in having the text knowing the text being that that intimately connected with the text so that you can employ it in context and, and put God's words to work. Um, and that's just a personal, like nobody has to agree with that, but that's a personal passion and conviction that I have. And so I just have this really strong affinity for the power of the scriptures. And maybe it's the inner fundamentalist in me still like finding a way to live yeah. on, <laughs> but I do. And I love textual criticism because... Boy, did it help me understand this Bible that I believed in so much, but had so many questions and to go over and see it in context and study the history and to get my filter adjusted so that I was my, my hermeneutic appropriately tuned so that I was reading this for the intent of the author. It, it, this thing just came alive. Uh, it, it all just, it is, it is who I am. It is how my mm. heart beats. It is, it is what I That's wake great. up. If Dean Troon, the founder of Impact, was about prayer, for me, spiritual formation is about text. And uh, I would never say that that's what it's supposed to be for every single follower of Jesus, but whether it's because I'm I'm Jewish or whether it's because it's just me, uh, boy, that is where that is where you, everything starts ringing for me. Um, so, so, so this, that's all. I have a question that's, that's so helpful. And I, I love what you just said. Like, it might not be for every Christian. Um, so I'm just going to give you, I want to speak from a completely naive, probably judgmental, you know, uh, limited understanding space and in just an honesty. So <clears throat> when I hear, I, and I, I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. And I've had seasons where I felt very similarly alive, kind of understand whether it's deep, diving deep into some, you know, N.T. Wright or Walter Brueggemann or like any of these other people that illuminate the scriptures in ways I've never heard before those times have been there. The flip side is when I hear like people of the text, and this is just me with the verbiage reacting, right? It's like, for me, I come from, and a lot of our listeners, particularly that came out of more conservative fundamentalist backgrounds, right? That the, that's not the experience of someone that maybe was text centered or say, let's say Bible centered or, well, well, what does the Bible say? What is the, you know, that weren't necessarily particularly educated on what the text actually said. And I don't mean academically. I just mean have actually done the work and the heavier lifting 
um, but are literally like reciting things off a page in a particular translation because some preacher told them to, and maybe missing out on the actual essence of the living embodied word that is, you know, Jesus, the word made flesh, and that led to a, uh, sort of like a superficial understanding of, well, that's just what the Bible says. I'm Bible centered. And all of a sudden there was this kind of elevated understanding of the text with, but actually missing out potentially on the actual, you know, life and essence and meaning of what, what Jesus was actually doing. I know that's different. I, I know that's not a good way to phrase it, but I think you're making a distinction. You're not literally like this is, there, there is a distinction from someone who maybe doesn't really know anything about any of the, the, the real text, but is just relying on, you know, what some one-off passage in, in a letter of Paul says about women and leadership is that, well, that's just what the Bible says versus someone that's, that's just an example, that's really doing the deeper work and becoming this le- living, breathing person of the text. Does that make any sense, kind of the distinction I'm making and why I would almost react? Because I'm thinking, love God, love others, and become, pe- you know, become followers of Jesus, become people of the kingdom, right? I, I wouldn't naturally go to people of the text because of where it almost rubs me the wrong way. Again, in my misunderstood sort of one perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I would, I would deeply resonate with that as well. Uh, I think, and I think like the kind of, the kind of text centric, um, text centric world you're speaking of that I, I'm very familiar with, especially growing up as well, is actually not I'm going to pull a Brian McLaren here. It's actually not text-centric. It mm. actually has a very low view of Scripture yes, because they're using Scripture to just spout dogma and doctrine. So they're just using proof text. They actually don't hold the Scripture highly. They don't hold it with a sense of holiness and sanctity, that this thing is way bigger than my understanding. It, because if we think we can own this, like yeah. we have it, and we have it figured out. The mystery has been unlocked. We... I have a Peter. I have a Pete ends quote on my whiteboard right now. It says, um, "the the problem is in trusting our beliefs and not in trusting God." Like, if we get that right, if if we're if we're trusting God rather than just trusting our beliefs, um, then you approach the scriptures with this sense of open handed wonder and awe. How can these Jews that study the scripture so much? They're running circles around an entire megachurch full of evangelicals, just one of them in their knowledge of their book, <laughs> still approaches it with this sense of like, who knows? Like, wow. who knows what we're going to learn today? Who who knows what the Talmud's going to unlock? How, you know, there's, there's a sense of wonder, the sense of learning. It's that posture. It's that posture of openness. It's that posture of humility which makes, which somehow lies behind the distinction that I would make, because it's also not about, and I, and I appreciate what you said about somebody doing the work, but I would even push beyond that and say, even for people who can't do the work or don't do the work because, not because they choose not to, but just because they, they're not there yet. When they approach yeah. the scriptures with a sense of wonder and holiness and, and open-handed, what is God what is the voice of God? What is the breath of God going to breathe through these words today? They can even, they can be the most ill-equipped, ignorant, but if they come to the scripture, it, boy, powerful. That text, that text has the ability to just radically change hearts and not because they have all the words figured out and the hermeneutic correct, but because they went to it and they said, this, this is a treasure. 
there's a treasure here and there's something I'm going to, I'm going to unearth and it's going to change everything. And, uh, the work just makes it, just makes it more beautiful. It makes it more colorful. It makes it whatever, but, but it doesn't change its accessibility. Cause when you approach the scriptures with a sense of humility, it's just as accessible for, for anybody trained or untrained, put in the work, not put in the yeah. work. Cause that's, it's that powerful. It's that sacred. It's that holy. It's that infused. And now I'm starting to sound more like a mystic, which makes me nervous. I need to go back to my intellectual <laughs> cold academia. Yeah, go but, back in your yeah, hole yeah, yeah. for a while. Oh man, that's, that's, that's so that's good. good. I mean, it's so, um, I, I look back on, on things that I've done as a Christian and I, I can, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but I can totally see my correct interpretation completely screwing up my my practice of that. You know, like like just totally my I got I got I get so wrapped up in being right about something that I can't actually embody the rightness about it with my neighbor. Um, and that 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 to right. me, I think is the, is my is one of the one of the best things about the Bema podcast is that. Um, when you, you bring us back to the text because we need we need a narrative to ground us, but we're not we're not we're not you're not just cranking out Bible answer men and women. I mean, you know, this is we're we're becoming a, a hopefully a transformative community of people that are that are that are receiving our yeah. identity and 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 living into that uh, from this story. So thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I hope we're just learning how to we're learning how to think and how to ask good questions. Like that's what yeah. I hope the podcast is about. And we're not learning answers because the fact of the matter is we're going to know a whole lot more in four hundred years than we know today. And when you look back, we're going to look awfully stupid today uh, at our primitive Bible archaeological understanding compared to what we know four hundred years from now. So it's yeah. not about what we know; it's about learning how. It's about posturing, and and that's what I hope to do is use what we do know to be like. <laughs> How much do we not know just by looking at what we do know? How much, how much are we learning when we come to the scriptures and and just teach us how to ask good questions? That's yeah, amen. Oh, I think it's a good place to wrap it. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah, Marty, thanks so much. And we would turn folks that we'll put links in the show notes where we would turn folks' attention to the Bima podcast, to Impact Campus Ministries, coming Heck to a yeah. college campus near you. Anywhere else you'd have you'd have folks, uh, our listeners, dude. Put Athens, Georgia, on your list, man. UGA. All right, yeah. We, uh, we actually have a we have a bro- <laughs> we have a yeah we have a brotherhood ministry there in uh, well in Athens. Let's see. I'll have to. Do you really? Well, I'll, I'll have a not a not a part of our organization, but a part a restoration movement. We try to be really respectful of who's there and who's doing work already. And impact was always we started to try to plant ministries where. Uh, our brothers and sisters weren't yeah. doing ministry. And so if there's something already going on uh, in an area, we're always like, okay, well, we'll... We'll, uh, well if you think of it, I know. drop me an email, man. Yeah, whoever, whoever whoever that is, I'd love to get in touch with them. Yeah, if you're looking to, yeah, if you're well, looking to call out the remnant, just give Stephen a call and, um, you know, yeah, he like can throw out the well, truth. you got to be my launch group. We'll put you on the map, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Great, man. Good. Thank you so much, Marty. 